0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Toasty Kettle Podcast. My name is James. I'm your host. And today is episode 32. So, before I dive into the episode, I wanted to again give everyone a super big thanks for sharing the show, for telling people about it. We just passed 1,000 downloads, which is huge. That means the show is growing and it is taking off. So please, if you like what you heard, continue to share that with people that you know. It's really going to help grow the show and and help keep the lights on. So thank you so much for doing that. Now, we'll go ahead and dive right in to today's topic. So for episode 32, we're going to talk all about sushi. I just got back from a business trip in Vancouver, British Columbia. And one thing about Vancouver is they have incredible sushi. They have many, many, many sushi restaurants. And one style that is super popular there is Oshi Sushi. And we'll talk a little bit about that in the episode but <laughs> this sushi is incredible and in Vancouver they put their own spin on it so in addition to being the classic pressed sushi that you can find in Japan it they put a sauce on it and they take a piece of charcoal or a kitchen torch and they sear the top of it so it kind of caramelizes the sauce they put on and sears just that top layer of the fish and it is so good. It is the perfect bite. So balanced, tons of texture, tons of flavor. And when I was sitting in Vancouver, eating a lot of sushi, I thought, this is what I have to talk about. This is what I have to share with the world this week on the podcast. So today we're learning about the history of sushi. And I think it's safe to say when we all think of sushi, we naturally think of Japan. However, the history of sushi actually reaches further than just Japan. In recent years, sushi has become an obsession around the world. And Japan has been at the very center of that growing sushi trend for some time. So... I'm going to dive into the current sushi culture in Japan, and then we'll do a deeper dive into the history of sushi itself. Now, Japanese people are meticulous in their trades. They work at a single job, and they perfect the art. Sushi chefs, or itame, are no different. They start as an apprentice on cleaning duty, and they work their way up to actually being able to slice and serve fish. Now this process can take up to 20 years to actually accomplish. And that's incredible. Uh, it's a little bit of an outlier to go all the way to 20. The norm is going to be about 10 years to be properly trained. So in the States, if you complete high school and you go to 10 years of college, you're going to be a doctor. All right. I mean, just to put that Kind of training into perspective, they are putting so much time, effort, and energy into actually becoming a sushi chef. That's it. And uh, recently, some people have become an itame closer to two years. So, we've even seen in recent years that 10 year number come down in some places to even just two years. So, itame. Translates in English as in front of the board. And a sushi chef doesn't just slice fish and serve it up to hungry customers. Uh, they are intensely passionate about their craft. They're artists. They're entertainers. They're the ruler of the kitchen and they rule that kitchen with an iron fist. Nothing comes through that they haven't approved. And At the same time, they have to be charming hosts for their guests. They're front of house, they're very visible, and everyone can watch them work. A great sushi experience is going to begin and end with the itame and the passion and devotion they have for their craft. So it's no secret, Japanese people love sushi. It's what we've come to accept as fact. Now, did you know that sushi didn't actually originate in Japan? That surprised me. Sushi as we know it today was invented in Japan in the mid-1800s. However, sushi originated along the Mekong River in Southeast Asia. And this was during the Yayoi period, which stretched from 300 BC to 380. Now, this form of sushi was called narizushi, and narizushi is fish that's wrapped in salt and rice, and it's allowed to ferment. And narazushi appeared in a Chinese dictionary in the second century of the common era, and it was described as pickled fish with rice and salt. From here, it made its way to Japan, and the rest, as they say, was history. So Japan already had a love affair with fish and rice that was eaten in a number of different ways. You know, fish is an abundant source if you're completely surrounded like by water like Japan is. And with narizushi, they gradually shortened that fermentation process and eventually they skipped it altogether. Narizushi can get kind of funky monkey really quick and the smell is often described as a cross between blue cheese, fish, rice, and vinegar. I'm thinking of really good sushi with the essence of gym So, I don't know if I would have the guts to try that today, but that's how it got its start. The first reference to sushi in Japan appeared in 718 A.D., A record of taxes paid by items showed that taxes were actually being paid with sushi. For the next 800 years, sushi didn't really change much. It was the fermented fish and rice. With rice vinegar, that fermentation time shortened dramatically. And uh, as a result, the fish was less funky and more fresh. Now, my favorite sushi of all time mentioned at the beginning of the show, Oshizushi was perfected in Osaka, Japan in the early 18th century, and it made its way to Edo and sold like hotcakes. Now, I'm going to reference Edo a lot in the next few minutes. Edo is what they used to call Tokyo. When Oshizushi first came on the scene it still required some fermentation and for those of you that don't know again oji sushi Su- oji is a pressed sushi where you have layers of fish vegetables sauces seasonings and rice and then it's sliced into rectangles or triangles now because it took some time still, it still required some fermentation at that time. Stores would actually hang out signs in front when they had a batch ready to go. And that was how customers could determine where they could go for sushi. During the early 19th century, there were three major sushi restaurants in Edo. In a very brief 20-year span, thousands of sushi restaurants popped up. Nigiri nigiri sushi made it big during this period. It was very different from the nigiri that we see in sushi places today. The fish might have been cooked or heavily salted or marinated in soy sauce before it was served. The lack of refrigeration was still a big problem in serving raw fish. So again, they had to do some form of cooking or preserving to keep it safe. Some fermented styles of sushi are still eaten today. The narazushi is still something that gets done today. Eighteen generations of the Kitamura family still produce funazushi today. Now, funazushi is a narizushi that is actually made out of the Funa fish. And Funa is a type of wild goldfish that's native to the lakes of Japan. And due to different regulations over the years and catch limits, uh, it's actually become quite rare to find Funa, actual Funa in the Funa sushi. And instead... It's very, very similar to carp. And in some recipes, some places, carp is actually used instead of Funa. But again, it's the same thing. They're going to take the fish. They gut it through the gills and leave the roe and the fish intact. And it's then packed in salt and aged for a year. Then they repack it in rice annually for up to four years. So again, that's going to be all sorts of funky monkey when that comes out and is ready to eat. Then, of course, they discard the rice and eat the fish. Sheets of nori seaweed became available in the mid-1700s, and this led to the creation of makizushi, which is the rolled sushi we think of today. So there's six different types of sushi. It's often said that all sushi is going to fall somewhere in between uh, somewhere in one of these six categories, you have Oshizushi, which is the pressed sushi that I love. And in Vancouver, they actually sear the top of it. And it's absolutely amazing. I've heard that that spread to Toronto as well, but you still can't find it in the States. Um, Nigiri sushi, it's hand-pressed rice that's topped with fish or other veggies. The narizushi is the fermented sushi where the fish is packed in salt and or rice, and it's allowed to ferment. Then the rice is discarded before eating. Makazushi is that rolled sushi. It's the classic sushi we think of when we think of sushi. The ingredients are rolled in a sheet of nori seaweed, then cut into smaller pieces. Inarizushi is a pouch of deep-fried tofu and it's filled with different ingredients. It's often sweet and doesn't contain fish. And then Chirashizushi is a bowl of rice topped with various fish and veggie toppings. Now, again, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation on a lot of this, so bear with me. A lot of (laughs) Japanese naming here. Now, sushi began to spread globally like anything else in the United States. It uh, A lot of international cuisine found its way here with immigrants. The first sushi restaurant opened in the United States in the Los Angeles area in 1906. And because of anti-Japanese sentiment during World War II, it really hindered a lot of these Japanese restaurants from really taking off. And that continued all the way through the 50s. In the early 60s, Japanese cuisine Cuisine became became popular again in the United States and sushi restaurants began popping up all around Los Angeles and celebrities embraced them. And that's where it kind of became one of those elitist foods. And it was one of those foods that was expensive. The rich, the famous ate sushi. It wasn't for the common folk. (laughs) That was kind of the stigma around sushi. And Once again, uh, that began to spread in popularity. If a celebrity is doing it, everyone else wants to do it. (laughs) And uh, today, from a handful of restaurants, of sushi restaurants in the 60s to today, there's nearly 4,000 sushi restaurants across the country, and it's become a $2 billion industry. Now, sushi is... Gaining popularity in other countries, when I went to Guatemala, people ate sushi there. Um, In Europe, people eat sushi. And Australia, New Zealand, obviously you're going to have sushi there. Anywhere you have Japanese immigrants, you're going to have sushi popping up. Canada is no exception. In Canada, sushi became very popular in Toronto and Vancouver. Vancouver has a larger number of sushi restaurants per capita than Toronto. In 1976, Vancouver had three sushi restaurants. Just three. By 2014, they had over 600. And thank you, Vancouver. You have permanently ruined sushi for me. It's absolutely amazing there. I haven't been able to find sushi like it here in the States. So thank you very much. So now I'm going to end with some interesting sushi facts. I thought they were interesting. Um, Fresh sushi is frozen first. So even if you're in California and they're catching the fish 10 feet away from you, you are still going to be served frozen fish in the United States and Europe. Regulations require that raw fish be flash frozen to kill parasites and bacteria before consuming in Japan, sushi chefs, again, 10 years, 10 to 20 years of training They're trained to look for these possible defects in fish that could contain parasites or bacteria. It's considered a disgrace in Japan to get someone sick in your restaurant. Another interesting tidbit, you should never dip sushi rice in soy sauce. It's incredibly common in sushi places across the United States, and it's a big no-no. We get a big puddle of soy sauce and sop it up with the sushi rice. Now, a lot of effort and training and time goes into perfecting sushi rice. Dipping it in soy sauce ruins the perfect texture and consistency the chef was striving for. On a side note, when I was in Vancouver, I went into a super nice sushi place and I couldn't see soy sauce anywhere. It wasn't on any table. I'm sure if I had requested some, they would have brought some, but by design, They didn't want you corrupting their perfect bite. Nigiri is often eaten with fingers, and it's intended to be eaten upside down. The fish side should go on the tongue. Now, it is true, puffer fish sashimi exists, and it has the potential to kill you. The puffer fish contains neurotoxins that are 1,200 times more toxic than cyanide. This sushi, called fugu, is done with great care. If a chef accidentally cuts a gland or nicks one with his knife while preparing fugu, it could be lethal for anyone eating it. Chefs have to undergo rigorous training and certification to be allowed to even prepare it. They then have to eat their own finished product. That's quite the final exam there. (laughs) You have to be able to eat what you prepared. There's only one law that pertains to the emperor in Japan, and that's that he is never allowed to eat fugu. It's a real thing. Sushi becomes zushi when a type is specified. And that was something in the research like uh oshizushi, all of that. And I've seen it on menus in restaurants, and I always wondered why they're changing it to zushi. And now I know why. If you're specifying a type... It's sushi instead of sushi. An interesting fact about wasabi, and this is one you've probably heard before, real, real wasabi is incredibly pricey. And when you go to a sushi restaurant, the wasabi you are served likely isn't real wasabi. More often than not, it's just horseradish that's mixed with mustard powder and green dye. Another fact about nigiri, when you eat nigiri, it should be in one bite. The chef has gone to great lengths to prepare that perfect bite, so open wide and enjoy it. The pickled ginger that is served with sushi is meant to be a palate cleanser in between bites and not an additional topping for your sushi. This is one that kind of blew my mind when talking about sushi in Japan, bluefin tuna is the creme de la creme is the prized ingredient for sushi and they have overfished their waters to the point where it's actually hard to come by Uh, so today in japan a bluefin tuna has sold for as much as 1.8 million dollars before sushi took off in the united states bluefin tuna was used as cat food (laughs) so a little bit of a contrast there Uh, 1.8 million dollars versus cat food. Sushi chefs will spend almost as much time selecting the rice they'll use for their sushi as they will in selecting the fish for their sushi. So I mentioned in the United States, we have 4,000 sushi restaurants, and we kind of think that's a big deal. Japan now has around 45,000 sushi restaurants. So... Uh, yeah, they love their sushi more than, <laughs> more than Americans. Uh, it's crazy. 45,000 sushi restaurants. And one last fact. I love this one. Japanese chefs believe that a good sushi knife has a soul that was imbued by the craftsman who made, sharpened, and fitted the blade. Consequently, Japanese chefs treat their knives with the utmost care and respect. And professional chefs in Japan sharpen their knives every night after closing. So I love that. There's just a a certain beauty and a certain poetry that surrounds sushi. It's one of those exotic, daring foods that we have embraced in the United States. And (laughs) it's interesting that sushi has taken hold. The narizushi, that fermented fish sushi, has not but I would be interested to at least look at some of that in person. I think that would be an interesting experience to get a whiff of it and maybe, maybe be convinced to try it. But uh, but yeah, I, I think when it comes to sushi, it's a really good social experience. You know, I've eaten sushi by myself, and I've eaten it with friends and family, and it's always better to share the bite with someone else And to be able to enjoy that experience together. And it just adds the overall vibe that you get in a sushi restaurant. Where you have a master who's trained so hard to prepare something that you're going to scarf down in 30 seconds. And it's kind of incredible. It's incredible that that much training and precision and passion and dedication goes into creating one perfect bite. So that's all I have for you today. If you like what you heard, make sure you share the show on social media. You can go to ToastyKettle.com and share the article itself, uh, The History of Sushi. It's going to be posted with the episode. And you can always tell a friend, leave a five-star review. Whatever you want to do, it's always going to help. And again, thank you so much for listening. Thanks so much for sharing. And I hope you enjoy some sushi in your near future. I'd love to hear about it. Hit me up on social media at Toasty Kettle on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Tell me about your most amazing sushi moment. Until next week.